Hey, it's Jen. And just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest on coronavirus and other stories, keep up with your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. This is the 1A Podcast, and it's time for the News Roundup. I'm NPR's Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. Let's get into it. America's eyes are looking across the pond as Great Britain marks the end of an era. Queen Elizabeth II has died after 70 years on the throne. I just stopped by the British Embassy to sign the condolence book in her honor. I had the opportunity to meet her before she passed, and she was an incredibly gracious and decent woman. And the thoughts and prayers of the American people are with the people of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth in their grief. That, of course, was President Biden speaking late Thursday. The Queen oversaw the U.K. and the Commonwealth countries, a job that is now passed on to her son, Charles. For now, let's mostly keep it domestic. A historic heat wave is baking the West Coast. Both parties are looking ahead to the midterms as we get ready to wrap up the primary season. And another twist hits the Mar-a-Lago investigation as the former president gets his special master. Jonathan Lemire is Politico's White House bureau chief. He's a political analyst and the host of Way Too Early on MSNBC. Joining us today, John, welcome. I appreciate being here. Alexis Simendinger is a national correspondent with The Hill. Alexis, always a pleasure to have you. Good to see you. And Leanne Caldwell is a congressional and White House reporter for The Washington Post. Hi, Leanne. Hi, Sarah. So I want to start with the Queen, of course. What else? Obviously, that is an international story, but it's one that Americans are certainly paying attention to. The U.S. has such a close relationship with the U.K. Queen Elizabeth met nearly every U.S. president since Truman, except for one. Alexis, I'll start with you. What kind of reaction are you seeing so far from Americans to this news? Well, one of the things about being on the throne for seven decades is that generations uh, of Americans feel like they got to see or know or at least be acquainted with the Queen. So the reaction in the United States was uh, in some ways as stunned or surprised as in the UK, even though she was 96. So immediately uh, you could see that the president adjusted his schedule. The uh, Speaker of the House immediately talked about the efforts to honor the Queen in in Congress. Uh, She, of course, has uh, met the Queen before. The president uh, had gotten uh, his first chance to meet Queen Elizabeth when he was a senator in the 1980s. So a 79-year-old president and an octogenarian speaker, immediately they reacted because they knew her for many, many, many decades, at least in that official capacity. And then, of course, we saw previous presidents, U.S. presidents, everyone from George W. Bush and Donald Trump and Obama, President Obama, former President Obama, all remarking on their experiences in one way or another with Queen Elizabeth. And they all had very similar very kind and warm things to say about her. President Biden was interesting in his uh, his common reaction. Previous presidents, including Bill Clinton, had reacted to her as if she was kind of a mother figure or reminded them of their grandmother or their mother. So there's there was a general kind of warm, immediate embrace of her and what she meant to the United Kingdom and also to the relationship with the United States. Yeah, Jonathan, uh, we just we just heard Alexis talking about just the institution that the Queen really was, and and the way that she uh, was such a presence for so long. What does the Queen's death, you know, at a time when the UK also has a brand new Prime Minister, there's a lot of change going on. What does that mean for U.S. politics and foreign policy with this close ally of ours? 
Well, certainly fitting for the queen whose entire life was dedicated to service of country, that just days before her passing, uh, she accepted the new prime minister, Liz Truss, uh, in fact, at the her estate in Scotland where she would, would later die, that she was working right until the end uh, for her country. Uh, it is, as you point out, a sort of a perilous and precarious moment for, for the United Kingdom. Uh, inflation is soaring there even higher than it is here. There's a real cost of living crisis uh, there at the moment. Um, we just had Boris Johnson resign after a number of, of scandals. Uh, Liz Truss comes in. Uh, she is someone who is a firm believer in, in, in Brexit. Uh, she has, has pledged to maintain the UK's support for the war effort in Ukraine, um, which is obviously fundamental right now to UK-US relations. We anticipate that the prime minister will meet with the president of the United States soon potentially, uh, at the funeral of the Queen, which is expected about a week or so from now, uh, and if not, almost certainly at the United Nations General Assembly, uh, which is just a few days uh, after that, later this month. Uh, There's certainly no suggestion um, that the relationship between these two countries would fundamentally change uh, after the Queen's passing, but we we should take a moment to note just how much of a priority she placed on maintaining that so-called special relationship between these two nations. As mentioned, she saw met with more than a dozen presidents traveling to, to the United States, also hosting them uh, in her home country. She really understood the bond and the connection between the two countries, and that will fall on the newly minted King Charles III uh, to maintain. A member of the 1A Text Club writes, I feel like Americans are fascinated by the royals because we've gotten to watch so many of them grow up. Americans have a president for four to eight years, and then they largely drop out of public view. I think our system of government has a lot of benefits, but there's something appealing about having somebody who's an enduring face of your country. Leanne, why do you think it is that uh, Americans are so fascinated, not all Americans certainly, but so many, if you look at media coverage, are fascinated by this family and the monarchy in, in Britain? Yeah, I'm I'm not so sure why actually. I'm not one of those people, <laughs> which is okay. <laughs> but um but I think that, you know, it is fascinating and also because it's something distant. It doesn't impact them. We can watch it really as a spectacle. But the monarchy has also received a lot of criticism and especially in the United States, especially with its history of colonialism and and the structure of it and kind of the the strict traditions that it maintains. Um, I think the entrance of an American into that family, uh, Meghan Markle, has sparked a renewed interest. Of course, it brings bring with it a lot of drama. But um, this is something that 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 is distant to us. It is something that can be revered and watched. Um, the traditions, everyone loves, you know, big, massive, beautiful, gorgeous traditions. And I think that is what kind of draws a lot of Americans to it. Um, and of course, there's you know, the crown. People now, I know, are waiting anxiously for the next season of the crown. My own my own theory about that is that it, it's sort of, it's a soap opera in disguise, right? Yeah. I mean, you can watch the crown and feel a bit sophisticated, and yet, really, it's just a fascinating story. Now, I want to move on to the weather. A massive heat wave broke temperature records across California this week, with many places seeing highs in the triple digits. California and many other Western states are experiencing simply unprecedented temperatures. In fact, this heat wave is on track to be both the hottest and the longest on record for this state and many parts of the West for the month of September. That was Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom on Tuesday. 
Alexis, as humans continue to warm our planet, scientists say these extreme events will only become more common. I feel like there's another headline every day, really, about this climate change, heat waves, floods. But how is California coping right now? Well, California has come up with a variety of responses that have really caught people's attention. And one of them that I think uh, immediately hit the headlines was the concern that the grid, the electricity grid, was not going to be able to handle it and was going to have to go into some uh, blackouts uh, when the surge of demand was uh, at its peak with the heat. And on Tuesday, there was a decision in the state to actually use the text messaging system to tell select populations that if they voluntarily were to reduce their energy load, there might be the possibility of avoiding these blackouts. And what the state discovered is that that the California recipients of these text messages immediately responded, whether they were businesses or residents. And that helped to avert what might have been you know, real hardship. Now, there was lots of discussion about why there might have been some blackouts that uh, some utilities uh, may not have needed to do. But in terms of dealing with the electricity grid, that was a very innovative effort that had been planned ahead and was executed without knowing how Californians would respond. And I imagine that they learned a lot from doing that. In addition to the uh, the impact on the electricity grid, we're seeing lots of discussion about the drought, water, the the um, loss of the effort to get hydropower up to meet demand, and what it's going to mean for the agriculture sector of California, which I know you all have talked about before on this show. So the responses have been mixed, but one of them that is so interesting is the voluntary effort to conserve. You know, Jonathan, wildfires are always a fear in California. And one of the goals, among many other goals of of President Biden's infrastructure package was to address some of the effects of climate change, wildfire preparation and mitigation, I think, was on the list, at least at one point. How is that going? Where does that stand? Yes, it it is. And and it's a two-pronged approach here. And Democrats will point to a couple of significant pieces of legislation they passed over the last year or so that at least takes some aim at this at this problem and, and at climate change. You mentioned the infrastructure bill, which signed into law last year, uh, which adds some resiliency, adds money money for uh, better equipment, adds you know measures to try to inf- increase water supply to to des- you know parched areas and so on. And now, of course, we have the reconciliation package, the IRA, as it's been dubbed, um, the Inflation Reduction Act, which has climate change provisions, the most significant ones in a long time. And certainly there are some activists who feel like they didn't go far enough. And as you correctly point out, we have daily headlines about the severity of climate change, but they feel like it's a start uh, and they feel like this can make some good and that funding will take those first crucial steps. We'll get into more of the week's biggest headlines after the break. Remember, to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Introducing Group Sessions, a new BetterHelp therapy offering currently in pilot testing. Therapist Joy Bergheimer shares how finding a community of people with shared experiences can help clients become more comfortable with therapy. For quite some time, we have not normalized mental wellness, and a lot of our families would shame you when you would say that you were feeling depressed or you're feeling overwhelmed. If you have been told over and over again that 
basically you have a character flaw. If you're seeking therapy, that's going to be a reason that people don't want to go seek therapy. But actually being in group with other people and hearing them say a story that feels like it came right out of your book is huge. Like, oh my gosh, this is not abnormal, right? And this person is further along in their journey than me. So now I know that therapy is something that can shift things for me. So really seeing their peers has been a huge shift for people accepting therapy for themselves. To get 10% off your first month of online therapy, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. But let's start with Capitol Hill. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer told reporters on Wednesday that the Senate will vote on same-sex marriage in the coming weeks. Capping insulin costs and an antitrust bill are also on the Democrats' to-do list before November. Leanne, why are they choosing to focus on these issues right now? Well, as far as capping insulin costs, um, that is something that they were partially able to do in the Democrats' Inflation Reduction Act uh, as far as the um, Medicare program. Um, They weren't able to do it with private insurance. So, yes, they would love to do it. Um, They would also love to do antitrust. But I must say these are the two issues out of all the things that they probably aren't going to get around to. Um, First, uh, they would like to do it because it is good for voters. They think that it will benefit Democrats. Um, But I think that they're going to fall on the chopping block. Um, As far as same-sex marriage, that is something that could very well happen before Uh, the midterm elections. Senator Schumer, there's going to be a vote on it in the coming weeks. Uh, My sources tell me um, that they think they have 10 Republican votes in order for it to pass. Um, Those 10 Republicans have not come out publicly, though. So we will see. Um, A vote is expected not next week, but the week after. And Democrats think this is a win-win for them. If the vote passes, then voters will thank Democrats for it for codifying same-sex marriage. If it loses because there is not Republican support, Democrats think they will be able to blame Republican voters will blame Republicans for it not passing. And so these are priorities. But first, they must uh, fund the government before September 30th. And that is the ultimate priority. They do not want a government shutdown. Some Republicans, like Senator Marco Rubio, have dismissed the idea of a same-sex marriage bill as a waste of time, uh, pointing out that same-sex marriage is already legal. Of course, this push came in in response to the overturning of Roe v. Wade and and sort of further clarity that just because something's seen as a constitutional right at one moment, it may not be later. Um, how much is this a symbolic effort versus, uh, you know, something that would have practical effect? Republicans think that this is completely symbolic. Many Republicans, I should say, think this is completely symbolic and completely political on the face of Democrats who are invoking fear um, that this right of same-sex marriage could go away. But Democrats look at the Roe decision. Um, they read Justice Thomas's uh, decision, uh, support of the of of the Dobbs decision overturning Roe, and they say this is a very real threat. Um, and so, either way you look at it, who knows if this is something that the Supreme Court will ever take away? But Democrats say, if we act now, we will make sure that they have no ability to do that. Meanwhile, House Republicans are planning to unveil a United Party platform they're calling Commitment to America. This takes me back to the 90s, I think. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy previewed the four-part plan last week. Republicans have a plan for a new direction that will get our country back on track. Our plan is a commitment to America. If Republicans are given the opportunity 
an honor to have the majority in the House, we will work day and night, hour after hour, for you, the people. Alexis, what do we know so far about this plan? Is this another, for people who remember the 90s, another Republican contract with America or something different? It's a little bit different. I would say uh, that it's supposed to be a kind of a shadow of the of that memory, that uh, the contract with America, which was something that former congressman from Georgia, Newt Gingrich, who later on became speaker because Republicans did so well in that midterm election that they came out of the of the woods where they were in the minority and and got the majority. Um, the contract with America was a very detailed list of specific legislation that Republicans went around and campaigned uh, in in districts in different states, saying that if they had the majority, this is what they would do. This is what they would deliver as a contract. What Kevin McCarthy is doing, hoping that he too will rise to be speaker if Republicans do well in the midterms. It's a, a list of almost bumper stickers, not necessarily a list of legislation. It's not as detailed. But what he's striving to do and will do uh, in a speech in Pittsburgh, uh, likely September 19th, is really outline and encourage members of his party who are can- campaigning that these are the themes that the Republican Party can campaign on nationally. And members of his party and his caucus have said that they welcome this kind of guidance and the talking points and all the sort of they go to school to train on how to campaign using these themes, the themes being economy and crime, border security, um, free choice, uh, elements of basic tenets of the Republican Party. And you can see that in the Senate side, there's also an effort on the part of Rick Scott, who's in charge of trying to get Republicans elected to the Senate, he very much believes that they should all have a a kind of common theme to campaign on. And much has been made about how uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, differs in his opinion with Rick Scott about whether that kind of template is helpful or not. Now, this week, the Washington Post reported that classified documents describing a foreign nation's nuclear capabilities were seized in the FBI search of former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago compound. Jonathan, what more do we know about this? We know that this was a great fear among many in the government when it was first determined that now former President Trump had classified and top secret documents at his Palm Beach estate. Now, we don't know which country uh, this information pertains to. There are only eight uh, in the world uh, that have full-blown nuclear capabilities, but there are others who are aiming to do so, Iran, for example. Um, but this is, this is top secret. This is important stuff. This is about as sensitive as it gets. And we know uh, from reporting that some of the material that was recovered there uh, is is so secret that a lot of the federal agents involved in the search can't look at it themselves. Only some have the necessary clearance to be able to do so. And right from the early days of this story exploding, once word came out of the FBI search in early August, it was said to me that there were two you know camps of documents uh, that would be the most uh, important uh, and most worrisome if they were recovered. This is one of them nuclear secrets. The other would be about human intelligence, the idea of covert operations, U.S. spies on the ground, or perhaps 
assets that we have established in other countries, that if that were to also be part of this, and it's so far not reported that it has been, that would be the other gravest concern. But it points to the level of severity here for a story um, that simply will not go away and connecting to your previous conversation uh, is one that Republicans are now faced to deal with nearly every day on the campaign trail uh, when they are desperately trying to change the subject to what they find uh, friendlier ground. Leanne, there are so many questions here. Um, As Jonathan just alluded to, some of these documents require, you know, clearances above top secret. So this is uh, very, very sensitive information. What more are we learning about this? And I guess what what questions do you have going forward as this investigation unfolds? Well, um, one of the big questions that the director of national intelligence is supposed to be looking at, which actually both the intelligence committees in Congress are very interested in, is what were the national security impacts from uh, from Donald Trump having these documents? Um, and that is something that people are very interested in um, because for many, it would uh, perhaps justify uh, why the Department of Justice and FBI wanted these documents back. Um, and and so moving forward, I think that one of the biggest questions is, you know, everyone wants to know what is actually in these documents. And unfortunately, that is something that we are never going to be able to know because of the classified nature of these documents. And so that is why it is very easy to also turn this into a political um you know, a political issue, especially on behalf of Republicans who have been doing that, saying that this is only, you know, a political, another witch hunt against the former president. But I think that the increased evidence that has been reported out and also the more information we are learning from these legal filings um, gives us a lot more insight into the severity of this. Listener Mark emails, I've read that Democrats are reluctant to indict former President Trump because they're afraid that Republicans would indict the next Democratic president in retaliation. I just can't believe that's even a consideration. That would mean that there is no justice or accountability. This week, a federal judge approved a request from Trump's attorneys to appoint a special master in the Mar-a-Lago case. So, Leanne, what exactly is a special master and what would they do? So the special master is someone who would be, you know, who the judge says would be appointed to look at the documents to determine two things, if there is attorney-client privilege and executive privilege. Now, the Department of Justice argues that the president does not have, the president who is no longer president, no longer has access to executive privilege protections. Um, The Department of Justice is already arguing that they have a team of people People who have combed, who are combing through the documents to separate the ones where there are uh, attorney-client privilege. Um, you know, so this is something that has definitely delayed this investigation. Um, this special master who has not been appointed yet. Um, it, it could be. It would be very hard to find someone who is not political, someone who is not have leanings on either side of this, and so. That is, you know, a big, huge concern to the Department of Justice. Alexis, I want to follow up on that a little bit. What can we say about why the judge approved this request? And was that a surprising move? The judge in Florida indicated in her ruling that what was on her mind was what she called fairness. She is a Trump-appointed 
uh, judge, but th- the description of what was on her mind has been described as kind of a mess by legal analysts uh, all over the place. But at the root of it, she said she really wanted to be fair because the situation was so unprecedented with a former president, and she wanted to lean um, towards that uh, that goal, fairness. So the Justice Department has had some really challenging decisions to make. And in this appeal, they're trying to find a sweet spot in the middle, basically asking this judge uh, not necessarily to admit that she was wrong or overturn her ruling, but to basically adjust her ruling to consider that the Justice Department believes that its baseline investigation, as Leanne described it, is about national security. And that needs all deliberate speed. It doesn't involve executive privilege. It can't involve executive privilege, as Leanne described. And the effort on the Justice Department is to say, look, you know, by midnight Friday, we might come up with some names with the Trump team for potential uh, special masters, but we want to wall off this investigation that we're uh, undertaking with the intelligence community uh, to do what is very uniquely something secret that a special master normally doesn't do. I might also add that legal analysts keep pointing out, and I think this is so true and interesting, that under law, executive privilege is not very well defined, and that most special masters or independent arbiters are not asked to interpret the law in terms of what executive privilege is in this case. They basically are given something that is pretty cut and dried in law with precedent under law, in terms of what it is that they're, you know, arbitrating, what what fairness they're trying to apply. So this is really a mishmash, and the Justice Department is trying not to get, you know, crosswise with the judge, but trying to get its way. On that note, Reed in Tallahassee says, quote, the phrase, no one is above the law has lost all meaning if the DOJ doesn't appeal this ruling that equal justice is a myth in America. But Lauren in Virginia writes, I saw a constitutional law professor on CNN who said the appointment of the special master isn't actually a win for Trump, but rather a fairly normal legal procedure to ensure that the DOJ can maintain the perception of impartiality by having a third party oversee the process And she asked, what do you think? Jonathan, I'll ask, what do you think? I think that most legal experts think that this was unexpected, that this that she her interpretation of the situation uh, defied normal legal guidelines. Yes, it's true. Bringing in a third party does inherently add an air of impartiality to the proceedings. Um, But the Department of Justice, clearly, by saying they indeed will appeal, sort of a targeted but aggressive appeal, shows they disagree. And this is the idea of executive privilege when he's not the current president, uh, and the current president, President Biden, has said that executive privilege, he would not grant it, it would not apply. Also, of course, that these materials aren't Donald Trump's. They don't belong to him in the first place. So therefore, it can't be that damaging that they're being handed over, uh, is also part of what the DOJ is saying. What is clear, though, is that this process, the appointment of the special master and then the appeal, is going to slow things down, that this is going to take longer now and therefore push off uh, over the horizon when that matter, the moment will come when the Department of Justice will have to decide whether or not they do want to indict, whether they do want to bring criminal charges against a former president. But that may not be all bad or that unexpected because all along it was a growing sense that DOJ, even if they were to do so, they wouldn't until after the midterm elections. We're now two months out, and though Donald, and there is these informal DOJ guidelines of not 
doing a thing that could be interpreted as being overtly political 60 days from an election. And though Donald Trump's name, of course, does not appear on any ballot in 60 days, he is still the top figure in the Republican Party and bringing him would inherently be political. This decision here guarantees that this won't happen before the election. And Dave tweets, not indicting Trump proves the criticism that there are two separate sets of laws for Americans, one for the wealthy who can buy their way out of any crime and one for the poor who go to jail for years over petty theft or minor drug possession. Trump must face charges, Dave says. I'm Sarah McCammon. We will hear more from you and our guests in just a moment. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back to the conversation. I want to check in on some other recent investigations now. For the first time, a judge has barred someone from holding public office for their participation in the insurrection on January 6th. So on Tuesday, a judge ruled that Cowboys for Trump founder Coy Griffin must be removed from office for participating in the January 6th attack. Griffin is currently a county commissioner in New Mexico. Jonathan, how big of a deal is this ruling and does it have implications beyond New Mexico? In itself, it's certainly significant. This is just the fact that this has happened now for the first time, that someone who was deemed and was determined to be an active participant in the January 6th insurrection barred from holding public office. Now, what we don't know is whether this will set any sort of precedent, whether this will extend beyond New Mexico. Um, there are other candidates for office this year who were also determined uh, to have been there on January 6th. Uh, in, including, I believe, uh, the Republican nominee for Secretary of State in Arizona, uh, and there are, I believe, one or two others across the country. So whether they are barred from holding office is certainly would be uh, striking. And, of course, it has been raised by some political commentators who don't have an answer, but, of course, put the question out there, well, if this is the case, shouldn't the same standard be applied to Donald Trump, who incited uh, the riot at the Capitol uh, on January 6th, many believe, and of course, who is eyeing potentially uh, another presidential campaign in 2024. Hinting strongly that he is. Uh, Leanne, on Thursday, former Trump advisor Steve Bannon pleaded not guilty to state charges of money laundering, conspiracy and fraud. Of course, this isn't the first time he's faced charges, but what is this case about? This case is about an organization that he set up, uh, I believe it was in 2019, called Build the Wall. Um, And this, he had told people that all of the money that they donated would go to actually building the wall on the border of the United States and Mexico. Um, And the, uh, allegedly, uh, this money did not go toward, or I guess he's been indicted, but the money did not go toward um, only building the wall, that it went to pay people. Um, And so that is what this case is about. It's also important to note that Steve Bannon was pardoned by Donald Trump for this exact case. But that was a federal pardon, which does not apply to state cases. So this case is brought by New York State, and that is why uh, Steve Bannon was forced to surrender yesterday and why this case in the state of New York is moving forward. Not to mention that Trump is no longer president. So um, how might this case play out, Alexis? Um, as Leanne just mentioned, it's, it's state charges. What's next? 
Well, in this particular case, we also should mention that Steve Bannon has pleaded not guilty, and he has said that he um, is not in not in any way responsible for uh, or guilty of two felony counts of money laundering, two counts of conspiracy, a count one count on scheming to defraud. So he plans to fight this at the state level. What's also interesting about this, though, that this investigation by the state of New York to look into fundraising on the part of uh, those associated with President Trump has also shown up to be an interest at the federal level related to um, uh, former President Trump's uh, PAC, Save America PAC. And we have learned in the last week that the Justice Department uh, seems to have convened a grand jury to look into uh, how that money was raised. No charges, uh, but in investigating that. How was that money raised? How was that spent? Uh, how was it basically presented to potential donors? These are small dollar donors, right? So one of the things that's interesting, I think, to those of us who are watching investigations spread out like kudzu is that a lot of this is is following the money. This is a basic element of uh what has circled Donald Trump for many, many years. And some members of Congress have called this kind of thing a grift and are eager to try to establish where the money went, maybe in relationship to funding the January 6th events themselves. And in this particular case, whether President Trump profited himself in his ex-presidency off of money that was maybe fraudulently um, collected. I want to turn now to health. We now have a COVID-19 booster shot designed to target multiple strains of the Omicron variant. Dr. Ashish Jha with the White House COVID-19 Task Force gave an update on Tuesday. Barring any new variant curveballs, we've seen curveballs, for a large majority of Americans, we are moving to a point where a single annual COVID shot should provide a high degree of protection against serious illness all year. That's an important milestone. Jonathan, why is that such an important milestone? Well, we should first mention that there are some health experts who think that might be overstated, that that we have seen too many variants already of, uh, of, of the coronavirus and that there's not the, the – there's too much of a – that there's not a guarantee uh, or even a semblance of a guarantee that one shot a year might be enough. That said, this is a significant moment, the administration believes. This is the first uh, vaccine, first booster designed to handle both the original strain of coronavirus, which is what also the original vaccine was meant to do, uh, as well as the new Omicron variants, um, which, of course, is by far the most dominant strain uh, at the moment. So they do feel like this is another step towards a new chapter of this pandemic. Now, we should be clear, nearly 900 people are still dying a day. Uh, from COVID-19. And though society in many ways has returned to normal, schools are back in session, and workplaces starting to fill up again, uh, people certainly living their lives. First of all, that's not the immunocompromised who are still very much wary of this virus. But, you know, it also, even if you get it, these boosters 
should keep you out of the hospital, should keep you from serious illness or death, but you could still be quite sick uh, you know, for a week or more. So there, there's just still something we're living with here, but the administration feels like this booster is a big step, and we should note they're also sounding the alarm they're about to run out of funding. The Congress has not given them more funding for future tranches of the vaccine, for future awareness campaigns. Even this, even this awareness campaign for this particular booster is far more limited than others because simply they don't have the money to advertise, and they do worry that though they're encouraged by the de- development of this new booster, they worry that America is letting its guard down as we head into the fall and winter, where they do fear, as in falls and winters past of the last two years, we may be due for another significant surge. Uh, Leanne, what do we know about how the rollout for this booster shot is expected to proceed? <laughs> um, well, um that's a great question that I actually don't know a lot about, so I'll ask, let you ask someone else. But I think that something that's important here is that the White House is normalizing how COVID is treated in a way that they are normalizing the flu. And so I think that that is a huge um, change in their posture. We notice that President Biden barely talks about COVID anymore, except he was supposed to yesterday. Um, But the Queen's death had postponed that speech. We'll see if he uh, gives that speech at a later date. Um, So as far as the rollout is concerned, Maybe Alexis knows. Just uh, It's underway already. As we know, the government, the FDA, um, and the CDC gave it approval. And the Pfizer and Moderna versions of these very tailored uh, doses, booster doses, are available now uh, nationwide. And uh, many localities, mayors, governors are working hard, especially as the school year begins, to get people interested in these. And uh, and they are available cost-free. You can get them either through, depending on where you live, you can get them through your health department or local pharmacies. Um, and you can find the jabs lots and lots of places. I wanted to add two things because Jonathan said something important, and that is the the idea of getting boosters, unfortunately, has not been uh, had huge take up in the United States. So one of the challenges as officials are looking at this winter, fall potential surge of the virus is that if you only have 32% of the population willing to get a booster so far, what can you do to encourage them to go ahead, get the original vaccine, you know, the first their first dose, their first jab, go ahead f- and get your boosters. And also for younger people, because the Pfizer and Moderna doses can be uh, either from uh, 12 years and up or 18 years and up. And so what we're seeing is that the White House working with state and local officials and infectious disease, public health, is really trying to encourage people to feel more comfortable about these and go ahead and get them because of the low uh, enthusiasm in the United States for boosters. Well, I think too, um, you know, it, it it becomes a logistical challenge, and particularly, and I haven't done any research on this, but I'm a household that has children of different ages. We all got our booster, or we all got our shots. I got my booster. I was ready to give my boys their boosters because they were on different schedules, and then they both got COVID. You know, before I could get them their boosters, and I think, um, you know, when it comes to just the logistics of so many different shots and so many different boosters. People struggle with that. And I have a flexible job in transportation, and and it's much harder for folks who don't. But I will say um, it's my understanding that federal health authorities are advising people to get their flu shot at the same time, right? So, um, you know, to your point, Leanne, it does seem like we're moving into sort of more of a normalization of the way we treat this. Go get your flu shot. 
go get your COVID booster. Also this week, a federal judge in Texas ruled employers can refuse to cover HIV prevention drugs for their employees if it goes against their religious beliefs. Now, right now, the Affordable Care Act requires them to cover that. That's a mandate that this judge says is unconstitutional. As background, in 2018, the same judge ruled that the entire Affordable Care Act was unconstitutional. Of course, that argument didn't fly with the Supreme Court, at least at that time. So, Alexis, I I see you nodding. I'll, I'll start with you. Why is this happening again? And could the judge succeed this time? Well, this is a very conservative Texas judge in a case that is interesting, and it has to do with whether... Uh, private employers who have uh, strong religious beliefs have to honor for their employees uh, a mandate by the government that certain kinds of preventative care or medical care be covered. And in this particular case, uh, the question was whether preventative medication that keeps uh, patients from actually getting sick with HIV um, and this includes both men and women, by uh, I should add, uh, whether the employer should be um, required to cover that under insurance. So this judge said, no, uh, if, they, if you have religious beliefs that are different, no, you do not. And that's where this challenge that will get appealed. This um, case was brought against HHS, and it will get appealed for sure. Um, one of the things that's interesting about it, though, is that public health officials who look at this with Uh, a great deal of concern, have said that there are many, many, many uh, medications that are considered preventative, that the Affordable Care Act has required insurance to cover, that uh, you can see employers might want to object to. And we're talking about uh, maybe birth control, maybe certain kinds of Uh, medications that deal with cancer, all kinds of, there might be all sorts of objections that might tie back to religious freedom. And the the, uh, public health officials who are looking at this case are concerned about not just what happens with an HIV drug called PrEP, but but also what happens going forward with other medications. Of course, we've seen litigation around the the birth control mandate because the, the Affordable Care Act also requires most insurers to cover that. Do we have any sense of what this Supreme Court is likely to say about these questions? Well, I think it's premature to imagine that it gets there. It's possible that it will get there. Uh, but as we know, the court, the complexion of the court in terms of its Republican tilt has changed since the Supreme Court twice upheld the Affordable Care Act on two different challenges. And it is entirely possible that the more conservative majority of the Supreme Court, which has already indicated in uh, in certain cases that deal with religious freedom, is very disposed to take that into account. In the last few minutes that we have, I want to quickly talk about um, a strange and disturbing case out of Las Vegas. Police there arrested a public official for the murder of an investigative reporter with the Las Vegas Review-Journal. Jeff German was found stabbed outside of his home on Saturday. Now, he had written a series of articles about Clark County Public Administrator Robert Tells, who is the suspect in this stabbing. Leanne, I understand that you're from Las Vegas, first of all. Mm -hmm. I mean, how is this story hitting communities there? And what can you what can you tell us about it? 
Yeah, the story obviously hits very close to home. I'm not only a journalist, but also from Las Vegas. And Jeff German is someone who has been known in that community for a very, very long time. Um, And the fact that it seems, you know, the investigation is not done yet, but perhaps this murder uh, happened because of his job, because of the work he did investigating this county commissioner. Um, Now it's coming out, Las Vegas Review Journal is reporting that there has, you know, that people who worked for this county commissioner, um, you know, have been fearful for a very long time about him. And that is part of what Jeff German's investigations into this person has has also had also found. Um, You know, this is a big picture. This is very shocking to the community, um, a community that has known hasn't known things like this happening as far as, you know, for many, many decades, this was a community that used to be run by the mob, and but it wouldn't impact even journalists back then. But this also comes in this environment um, where uh, journalism is, um, you know, we've had four years of journalists being called enemy of the people. Um, and this is the very real impact and threat Um, that language and rhetoric like that could potentially lead to. We're going to have to leave it there. We've been talking with Leanne Caldwell, congressional and White House reporter for The Washington Post, Alexis Simmendinger, national correspondent with The Hill, and Jonathan Lemire, Politico's White House bureau chief, a political analyst and the host of Way Too Early on MSNBC. Stay tuned. We'll be back with the global edition of the News Roundup in just a moment. I'm NPR's Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm NPR's Sarah McCammon, in for Jen White. And it's time for the global edition of the News Roundup. Let's get started. Heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. She was a fantastic lady. She'll always be a part of my life forever. It feels very strange to have this person that's been the head of everything in my life go. She's like everyone's grandmother, really. She's done some incredible work for this country and we'll forever be grateful for her. There's nobody like her in the world. For the first time in seven decades, the UK has a new monarch. Queen Elizabeth's eldest son, Charles, who will now reign as King Charles III, was at his mother's side on Thursday when she died at the age of 96. In the UK and around the world, a period of national mourning is now underway, which we'll hear much more about in a moment. Also this week, Russia pushes back at reports it's now asking North Korea to supply its occupying army in Ukraine, and a U.S. crackdown to limit just how far and fast big tech can do business in China. Joining us this week, Nancy Youssef. Nancy is a national security correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Nancy, great to have you back. Great to be back. Thank you. Also with us, Justin Vogt, executive editor of Foreign Affairs. Justin, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. And Jessica Donati with The Wall Street Journal. Jessica covers foreign affairs and national security. Jessica, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me back. But first, we will begin, where else, in London, with Anne McElvoy, executive editor at The Economist and host of The Economist Asks podcast. Anne, thank you so much for joining us. Great pleasure. As you know, for the first time in more than 70 years, the British public woke up without Queen Elizabeth as their head of state. What has struck you about the past 24 hours or so? 
I think it's a feeling, and I, I I must speak slightly personally because I don't think anyone can speak really for for the entire country on this. But you can see that the mood is is very subdued. I think people are disoriented, and like a lot of people who have a practical interest in this, you know, when the the news broke yesterday, you could sort of feel it coming in the air. And I work quite a lot as a uh, doing shows at the BBC, and the BBC has a particular relationship as the main national broadcaster. And once we saw that programs were being pulled and the presenters were appearing. In, in, in with black ties it, it was really only a matter of time but it was that awful feeling of hoping against hope that it wouldn't be so and the column that I wrote was really saying it's odd isn't it when you get to someone of that advanced age and you wish them a peaceful departure from the world particularly after such a dutiful life she saw in a new British Prime Minister only on Tuesday but it still felt like a wrench it, it does feel like your uh, lady in the clip said I didn't know my grandmother, but I, I think a lot of us felt whether we knew our grandparents or didn't. It's like the national feeling of losing your grandparent. The final lines of the obituary in The Economist read, quote, On that day in 1953, when she became queen, quote, she was vested with a sacred duty to hold together a country which, in the ensuing decades, became more diverse, irreverent, and distracted than it had ever been before. And so she did. And to what extent is this an existential moment for the UK and the way that Brits see themselves? I think we'll find out, won't we? I mean, in one sense, the transition to Prince Charles, I think, is running and will run as foreseen. And it's not so long ago after the death of Diana, but not only then, as we settled in with Prince Charles and trying to sort of get used to the fact that he would reign with Queen Camilla, when there was a lot more questioning about that. You would even hear quite respectable voices saying, oh, we should maybe skip a generation, this isn't going to work. But that isn't really, you know, that's not the way, then's not the breaks when it comes to a monarchy. And I think to that extent, continuity is guaranteed, and the Queen has worked very hard at that with Prince Charles. But I think you are right that you don't get away very quickly and this is this long period of of mourning and celebrations of her life and remembrance are probably there in the way that the British constitution works to get people used to this change. This is not something I think we will get used to from one day to the next. It will feel very different. There will be different pressure points. There will be different tensions. And we know the family is not without uh, without its problems uh, and without its kind of breaches as it is. But no, broadly speaking, I think tonight at St Paul's Cathedral where, you know, where we'll go along and we will hear uh, God Save the King for the first time and Prince Charles will speak. That is the moment as it must be after a death, when someone in the family says what she would have wanted is that life goes on. And I think that is the feeling that they will try to put across. And I'm curious how you think that Charles will be received. I mean, obviously, he is a very different personality than his mother. He, um, you know, he's had a complicated life and he's not a young man. He's, what, 72 years old, whereas when she came in, she was young, she was exciting. It's just a completely different situation. So how do you expect the British public to respond to him? Well, I think that's largely in in his hands. Uh, He certainly has that fondness and the legacy uh, of his mother, my son, who just jogged down to Buckingham Palace and just happened to arrive uh, by good fortune as Charles and Camilla arrived. And so the the crowd were reaching out to him and saying, long live the king. We loved your mother. These two thoughts are still so raw and still going together. Over time, he will hope that the we loved your mother will turn into a, a different kind of love or at least respect for him. He's not in the same 
represent. He probably does take decades of bedding in as head of state in a country until you have that real sense of affection, whether it's the left or right of politics, other than our right monarchists, most people have a strong relationship. And I think he knows he can't magic that up. You're right, he is older. I think it's an unideal thing in the British royal family that there is no sort of royal retirement plan. But I have to say the person who most did not want that was the Queen. She made that very clear. It was the only feedback I ever got, not of course from Her Majesty, but uh, from, from a very close age when I wrote that royal retirement was not the same as abdication. <laughs> he pretty much said, as far as she's concerned, it is. She said, you can think what you like, but it's not going to happen. And he was right. As we can see. Well, many thanks to your son for, for jogging down there and providing that, that firsthand um, account outside uh, as, as the news was coming down. I guess one last question, one more question for the moment, Anne. Just how much change can we expect from this? Um, this is such a time of transition. It would be very interesting because Prince Charles has stronger views than his mother. He wears them on his sleeve. He has, if he wants to be slightly impolite, more hobby horses that he likes to ride. And he, he, I don't think he will find it easy to get off those. I think he's also made some errors of judgment in terms of some of his charities and the way they've been financed. And they've sort of come to light rather embarrassingly recently. But I, I think that's really going to be the question. Is the Prince Charles, who I think rather awkwardly had waited too long to take this role and had often felt himself sandwiched between uh, William uh, and who is also very popular here his son and the next heir and the queen as one aid put it to me as the meat in the sandwich and they are very irreverent in the way they talk about themselves by the way um, so I think it is largely up to him uh, Camilla has a very good temperament she is very witty she is also seen she's a woman of a certain age but I think a lot of people are women rather warm to her and so gosh you know she took on a difficult situation and of course it was uh, traumatic but it is a lifelong love affair with Prince Charles. So I think he has to recast it. They're the ingredients he has. They're very different ingredients to the ones that the young queen had in the early 1950s. And remember, of course, she should, had it not been for the earlier abdication of Edward VIII, she would not have become queen at so young an age. So this is a family that is used to the quirks of dynasty. We're talking with Anne McElvoy from The Economist, Nancy Youssef of The Wall Street Journal, also Justin Vogt, executive editor of Foreign Affairs, and Jessica Donati from The Wall Street Journal, who covers foreign affairs and national security. Nancy, I want to go to you. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden signed a condolence book for the Queen on Thursday evening at the British Embassy. The president said that she defined an era. So I wonder why do you think there is so much ongoing interest here in the U.S. Uh, about the Royals. It is a fascination that has um, existed for, I dare say, as long as the Queen was um, the Queen. And I think part of it is um, the special relationship that we talk about between the U.S. and the U.K. I think part of it is that it is an intriguing system to um, a democracy like ours, the idea of one person um, being in charge in the ceremonial ray. I think part of it is that this is a queen who um, was um, entrenched in some ways in American history and valued American history and uh, and is was there, met 14 um, U.S. presidents, um, revered the U.S. military because she remembered their arrival at um, World War II. And so I think um, it's fair to say that America was um, a part of her experience um, and that her um, long span really was part of our experience and that um, when we think about um, that 70-year rule, we think about somebody who was as familiar with our leadership and, and our history uh, as, as we grew to be of, of her 
family history and the history of the monarchy. And Anne, I want to go back to you for a moment. You know, we often forget the Queen was also invested in the health of the Commonwealth, an association of more than 50 states around the world. Of course, Queen Elizabeth and the monarchy have a very complicated and often divisive legacy when it comes to race, colonialism, the role they play within British society and the Commonwealth. You know, one listener from our text club wrote, all due respect for the Queen's passing, but I hope the media will tell the story, the whole story of imperialism and the misuse of royal power. She preserved the status quo in a time when change is essential, unquote. What are your thoughts on that? To be honest, I mean, I find this, I understand because there's obviously renewed interest in how we look at colonial history and what we do about that and how we deal with it in the modern world. But just, just to be brass tacks a minute, if you've had 1,200 years of monarchy and your country has had an empire, you're going to have a colonial history to deal with in some way. And, and I don't really accept, and I, and I find some of the American kind of media response to it a bit puzzling, that this is kind of worse because you've still got a monarchy, given that Elizabeth II was an era, you know, she ran a, a, the place in an era that was marked by decolonization, by loss of empire. It was Elizabeth I's reign, if you go way, way back, that really is the massive uh, period of colonial expansion and everything that follows. And I think she was very comfortable obviously her views evolved but she was comfortable really from 1953 from her coronation with the idea that the commonwealth should be i think it, the, the phrase was uh, was uh, independent and free you know this is a freedom of association and it leans of course on colonial history but then so you know so does the way that france deals with the rest of the world, that Germany deals with the rest of the world, and they don't have a monarchy. I think you're stuck with your colonial history and the, the guilt, the responsibility, and where possible, the redress that flows from that. But I think sort of pinning that on the Queen always seems to be as a bit, as a bit bargain basement, really. We will spend a lot more time on the monarchy and its relationship with colonialism in the weeks ahead. You can send us your thoughts, 1A at WAMU.org. Of course, the news from Buckingham Palace came just days after another significant political event. Like Cincinnatus, I am returning to my plow. And I will be offering this government nothing but the most fervent support. Above all, thanks to you, the British people to the voters for giving me the chance to serve. And I will be supporting Liz Truss and the new government every step of the way. Thank you all very much. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you. And indeed, this week, the blonde-haired, flamboyant Boris Johnson passed the prime ministerial baton to Liz Truss. She won the race to succeed Johnson after he lost the confidence of his own ministers earlier in the summer. The new, more formal British prime minister laid out her vision for the country on Monday. I will cut taxes to reward hard work and boost business-led growth and investment. We shouldn't be daunted by the challenges we face. As strong as the storm may be, I know that the British people are stronger. Justin Vote, I'd like to go to you next. Americans will be getting to know Liz Truss in the months to come, but how is she different from her predecessor? Well, it would be hard to be similar to Boris Johnson for anyone <laughs> sure who enough. followed him. Kind of one-of-a-kind figure. Um, and, you know, he, the experiment of the, the, the Bojo uh, era, I think, can be safely deemed a failure, on, on, certainly politically, but also on, on policy. Uh, Liz Truss is a, is a different sort of figure. Um, one of the ways in which she differs from Johnson is that uh, Liz Truss actually 
became a sort of hardcore Brexiteer, a hardcore supporter of uh, the UK leaving the European Union. Uh, but she had begun as a Remainer, that is, someone who, who thought that um, uh, uh, the UK should stay in the EU. Uh, she shifted her position and, and became uh, something of a, of a Johnson loyalist. She was not amongst the group of, um, of uh, cabinet ministers that, uh, that, that sort of turned on Johnson and, and forced him out. Uh, she never really opposed him, and that helped her uh, win the uh, race uh, to succeed him, uh, which you know listeners may know was not a, a general election, but rather just a, just a vote amongst uh, conservative party uh, rank and file, which is just a few hundred thousand people. Um, that group of voters still looked at Johnson more favorably uh, than did the elected representatives of the, the Tory party, the conservative party. Uh, and so uh, although the, the elected uh, leaders of the party favored the other candidate, Rishi Sunak, uh, Truss did better with the rank and file. Um, as far as her, what to expect from her that's different, you, you, you can sort of, just listening to those audio clips that you, uh, that you played, you can hear immediately a difference in style. Again, obviously nobody's Bojo. Uh, Liz Truss is a, is a, a, a sort of somewhat more conventional um, and, and less charismatic a leader. She is inheriting a huge mess. Um, and a lot of the critics uh, of her campaign uh, you know, pointed out, including Rishi Sunak, who she was running against, that uh, the plans that she's put forward, um, they don't always seem to add up. Uh, so I think we can expect a lot of turmoil in British politics um, in, in the, the weeks and, and months to come. She's in for a bumpy ride. And McElvoy, before we let you go, you've given us so much of your time. I just want to ask you what you're watching um, during this time, as we say, of so much transition, a new monarch and a new prime minister. I think it'd be very interesting just picking up on those very uh, insights um, that we just heard there. For Liz Truss, who is really the, one of the last uh, people, probably the last person outside the, fa- the family and the staff to see the Queen alive and to have that handover, the 15th, or I think we're now on 16th, uh, Prime Minister that the Queen uh, anointed, is does that help reset? things fall as trust. It does seem to draw a line under the Boris Johnson era rather decisively in terms of the national psyche. So that will be interesting. But it is very true that it's it's a, a difficult time, you know, up to about Wednesday or Thursday morning. Uh, my show this week is all about uh, Liz Truss. Please do have a listen because it does try to answer some of those paradoxes. That was then. And we now feel that we are in a different world, same country, but in a sense, in a different emotional mood, a different state of mind. Does that help Liz Truss as she goes forward as the political leader in the country? She has only about 18 months to really turn this around if she wants to win the election. Is this going to help her or not? I'll be watching that. We've been talking with Anne McElvoy, executive editor of The Economist and host of The Economist Asks podcast. Anne, we appreciate your time so much. Thank you. Lovely to be with you. Thank you very much. Jessica, I'll go to you next. I want to move to Russia, which has been turning to some Cold War allies to purchase weapons. This week, the New York Times reported that Russia is buying millions of artillery shells and rockets from North Korea for use in Ukraine. But National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says there's currently no indication the purchase is complete yet or that the weapons are actually being used in Ukraine. So, Jessica, is Russia possibly turning to North Korea a sign that the sanctions are having an impact on their weapons stockpile? Well, that's certainly what U.S. officials are hoping. The news comes uh, from 
the classified American intelligence that uh, was shared with the media. And uh, it's been presented as a sign that global sanctions are restricting supply chains and, of course, turning to a country like North Korea, which is not known for being a primary supplier of weapons worldwide, suggests that Russia is having trouble keeping its stocks supplied. Uh, obviously, the Russian response is to uh, call this Western propaganda. Propaganda is obviously an important part of any war and uh, this one is no exception. And so we heard from Russia's EU ambassador that the story was made up by the media and that the Russian operation is going according to plan. The news about uh, North Korea also comes, uh, follows some other revelations that Iran has also been supplying uh, Russia with weapons, with military drones uh, last month and that some of these drones are faulty. So the picture, at least, that Western officials and Western intelligence is trying to present is one that suggests that Russia is starting to run out of equipment, arms, and that its position is starting to weaken. And Nancy, how might the logistics work here? I mean, do we know how weapons from North Korea would even get to Russia? So you, you ask one of the many logistical questions um, that um, this story raises, because um, while there may be compatibility and that they um, are both um, using Soviet-era weapon systems, it's not clear, as you point out, how the transport would happen. It's also not clear what the North Koreans would want in return for those um weapons. Presumably it would be oil or cash, but we don't know that. In addition, I think one of the things to think about um, as we look at this possible sale is what would the North Koreans be willing to give up? Presumably that they they wouldn't be willing to sell their most prized weapons, um, ballistic missiles, for example, or even more advanced weapon systems. So they're not going to be giving the Russians the best of the best in their own stockpiles. And so there are all sorts of logistical questions around these kinds of sales. And and more broadly, I think it really raises questions about what Russia is able to produce. What is it able to manufacture in their own country? Because even the 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 reporting we're seeing about what they're selling, artillery shells and rockets, presumably one would think that Russia could still produce them despite the sanctions, given the rise in oil prices and the 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 um, apparent lack of um, economic p- impact that many had thought would happen in the face of these sanctions. And so um, while, I th- as Jessica notes, that the U.S. Um, is signaling that this might show that Russia is in trouble in terms of being able to produce its weapons and having to reach out, it's still unclear logistically how it happens. And I don't think we'll really know until we start to see, if we see, those weapons on the front lines in Ukraine. Russia's ambassador to the EU, Vladimir Shizov, dismissed reports of the purchase, calling them, quote, made up. Speaking to CNN on Wednesday, the outgoing ambassador was sticking to Kremlin's, the Kremlin's party line about the war. I think it's quite simple, and uh, President Putin has outlined it, demilitarizing and denazifying uh, Ukraine and, of course, protecting uh, the uh, lives and the dignity of people uh, inhabiting Donbass. Again, the line from the Kremlin really since the beginning. Jessica, why would Russia be turning to North Korea and Iran right now to purchase these weapons? Well, as we as we've been uh, discussing, I think that the uh, the sanctions that have been imposed by the West, not just on its ability to buy weapons, but also on its ability to access financial markets, are making it difficult 
for Russia to pay for things. And so going to these other uh, countries that are also excluded from many of the world's financial and commercial networks makes it uh, possible for them to come up with some sort of deal on the sidelines. Uh, and uh, we have to wait, I think, for the coming weeks and months to see, uh, first of all, the details of these deals, exactly what is being uh, shipped over, what they receive, how they work out, whether indeed uh, the weapons that they may end up acquiring or the drones are faulty or not, and how they impact on the battlefield. Uh, recently, uh, in the in the past sort of days and weeks, Ukraine has been renewing its offensive in the south and the east, and it seems to be making some progress, regaining towns, and it's starting to move towards bigger targets, uh, which uh, some say suggest that Russian forces are beginning to be strained and uh, running out of morale and supplies, and that Ukraine is having greater success pushing them back. And so whether uh, this news, it's how much of it is is true and the details and how it impacts the battlefield is something that's going to be playing out, I think, in the months ahead. Also this week, Russian President Vladimir Putin has maintained his defiant tone and lambasted the United States and its allies. In a speech on Wednesday, he said that Russia had gained, not lost, global clout from the conflict in Ukraine. Speaking at the Eastern Economic Forum in the Russian city of Vladivostok, he dared the U.S. to try to defeat Moscow, saying that they would fail. Justin, what did you take away from that speech? Well, this has been Putin's story all along, and he's sticking with it. Uh, his rhetoric hasn't changed very much since, since February, and there's no reason to expect that it would. Um, it's bluster, and it's mostly aimed at a domestic audience, which is primed to hear it. Uh, it's not really meant to be taken too seriously, I don't think, by policymakers elsewhere. It's interesting, though, that, that he pointed out, that he kind of pointed to the international dimension of this contest. Uh, the idea that Russia has gained stature um, as a result of, of this war um, is nonsense. Uh, it, it is true, however, that there are parts of the world uh, where the United States and the West have struggled to get everyone on board with their uh, response to it, uh, in particular Africa and also India. Um, it's certainly true that for a lot of places in the world, it's not so easy to decouple uh, from Russia both because Russia is a major supplier of, of, uh, of wheat uh, and weapons, uh, and because, of, for historical reasons, there are, uh, remember that you know, during the Cold War, uh, and this pertains especially to Africa, the, the memories of U.S. involvement there are not all rosy, or Western involvement more broadly, and colonialism more broadly. Um, there, there are a lot of, countries and governments around the world who, who may not be particularly fond of, of Putin or his regime, may not really put a lot of stock in what the Russians say about the war or their aims, uh, but, but are not necessarily uh, willing to kind of jump on a bandwagon led by Washington uh, that is, is trying to isolate Russia and uh, trying to kind of diminish it. So uh, this is a, a challenge for U.S. diplomats and policymakers uh, in, in how to talk to countries around the world about uh, the conflict and how to bring them on side without making them feel like they publicly and overtly and enthusiastically have to choose sides. 
The door slammed shut this week on the Biden administration labeling Russia a state sponsor of terrorism, something some U.S. lawmakers have been calling for. And Ukraine's president, too, had urged the U.S. to make this move. Speaking to 1A last month, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said it was still under review. So why the change? Here's the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, speaking to reporters Tuesday. It is not the most effective or strongest path forward, as we have said many times before, to hold Russia accountable. Uh, This designation could have unintended consequences to Ukraine and the world. Now, Justin, if you could break this one down for us, at face value, we're seeing Russia carrying out war crimes in a country it chose to invade. So why not brand the country a state sponsor of terrorism? Right. Well, um, there's a there's a deeper problem here, I think, that we should point out first, which is is sort of the definition of terrorism, um, which, you know, I think all of us on this call and many of your listeners know in the past 20 years since 9-11 has sort of uh, persisted as a as a catch all phrase for sort of anything bad. Um, there is a form of of terrorism that people would consider state terrorism. Right. That's when when a, a government uh, actually conducts actions against civilians that are akin to what terrorist organizations, non-state actors do, uh, where the intention is to harm civilian life. Now, that's certainly what Russia has been up to uh, in Ukraine. The question then becomes, well, in what sense is that sponsorship of terrorism, right? Generally, state sponsors are terror of terrorism, the way we understand that label is when a state is assisting a terrorist organization, a non-state group, in a sense as a proxy or uh, to carry out a particular agenda. And the idea is to punish the state for sponsoring that group or for giving it that aid. This situation is not totally apposite there. It's, it's what people are trying to do is label Russia as a terrorist state. That's actually what I think the proponents of this legislation want. They want it to be clear that they see what Russia is doing as terrorism. Now, I would just say that for you know millennia, states have killed civilians in war, and we were able to, to condemn that and deal with it perfectly well without applying this label to it. Um, and as, the, as the, spokes, uh, the spokesperson pointed out, uh, the, the legal ramifications of doing this can be complicated and not always uh, you know, aligned with your goal. Um, I, I just think this is a, 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 an understandable but primarily emotional uh, impulse uh, to do this, to kind of keep loading on every, uh, every potential advantage against Russia. Uh, and if this is a, a way to, to you know, further vilify Russia, let's do it. Um, but I think as a practical matter, first of all, it doesn't really if you look at what the United States and its partners and allies have, are doing to Russia now in terms of sanctions, uh, in terms of, of arming its enemies, it's hard to see how this would uh, do a lot, uh, go far beyond any of that. There's, there's no obvious added benefit. And, and, it, and the downside is you get tripped up in, in some of these um, uh, legal structures that that designation uh, involves, and also into this broader definitional argument about, oh, what is terrorism? What is a sponsor of terrorism? What's a terrorist? And I think the Biden administration correctly, in my view, sees that as something of a distraction. Meanwhile, the U.S. is sending even more weapons to Ukraine. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said Thursday that Washington will send an additional $675 million in military supplies. That includes air-launched missiles designed to destroy enemy radars. Secretary Austin made these remarks at the start of a meeting of dozens of defense ministers at a U.S. airbase in Germany. The face of the war is changing. 
We will work together to train Ukraine's forces for the long haul. We will work together to help integrate Ukraine's capabilities and bolster its joint operations for the long haul. We'll work together to upgrade our defense industrial bases to meet Ukraine's requirements for the long haul. And we'll work together for production and innovation to meet Ukraine's self-defense needs for the long haul. Jessica, the billions keep coming from the U.S. Based on your own reporting, how willing is the Department of Defense to continue sending these large sums of money until there's some sign of a Russian retreat? I mean, I think these uh, the, these announcements send a strong signal of support to Ukraine, and it doesn't necessarily, the pace at which the money is being announced doesn't necessarily match the pace at which the weapons and other supplies are arriving. They also don't necessarily match the wish list that the Ukrainians have, which is uh, to request equipment that the U.S. is unwilling to provide. As we know, the U.S. doesn't want to be put into a position where they can be dragged into a direct war with Russia. So they have to be very careful. So this is one of the ways in which these announcements can help sort of keep the drum roll of support for Ukraine going. And obviously the other way, as we saw this week, was the Secretary of State's an unannounced visit there, uh, which gives another the U.S. another way of showing their support, for showing up there and saying, you know, we're here uh, to talk about uh, the counteroffensive that Ukraine is launching and to try and keep, uh, keep up the sense that the U.S. and its allies are behind Ukraine in this. Now, Justin, part of this aid is tied to the counteroffensive aimed at pushing back Russian forces in the south and east. And this week, The Washington Post reported on the heavy toll this is taking on Ukrainian forces battling for Kherson. What else do we know about that? You know, one of the, the more interesting things about this counteroffensive just in the past 24 or 48 hours, um, we sort of knew that Ukraine was, was pushing a counteroffensive, especially in the south and east. It actually seems uh, to have uh, taken Russia a little bit by surprise, even in the northeast, in Kharkiv. Um, where, you know, that wasn't uh, an area that we had seen a a lot of activity of this kind. Um, You know, Zelensky has claimed that Ukraine has recaptured 1,000 square miles of of territory uh, in the month of September. It's hard to assess that claim. I'm I'm sure Jessica and and Nancy will will back me up on this, Uh, partly because, uh, you know, Ukraine has, has in fact, restricted reporting on the counteroffensive. They don't, the Ukrainian, uh, uh, you know, uh, government doesn't want operational details or stuff to get out ahead of time. Part of the downside of that is that it's hard, it's a little bit hard to assess what's really happening if you're not on the ground. Um, So I, I think... The, the arms, the timing of these arms announcements, as, as I think Nancy pointed out, is, is definitely, um, there's a symbolism here that's meant to, to sort of signal continued commitment. Um, but there's also a practical, uh, you know, a practical side to it. Uh, the money that Austin uh, announced that the DOD is setting aside, I mean, this is, we're talking about howitzers, artillery munitions, Humvees, uh, anti-tank systems, all kinds of stuff that Ukrainians really need. For months now, if you ask Ukrainians what is it that they want from the United States and Europe, they have a very simple answer. More weapons, and the more sophisticated, the better. The, the risk here, for what it's worth, uh, to the U.S. And, and to a lesser extent to Europe, is that um, you, know, you, you may have heard that Russia has sort of called for an emergency uh, meeting of the Security Council uh, just today to discuss this whole issue about Western weapons support to Ukraine. Um, and the problem is that 
if if you think of it in in terms of if uh, the Ukrainian forces are 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 using all these American weapons, the, and the, the people who happen to be using them, pulling the trigger, so to speak, uh, are Ukrainian. What exactly is the distinction there? In what sense is the United States not simply just a party to the war? It's hard to answer that question objectively. What matters is the Russians' subjective judgment. Uh, at what point does the United States cross a line from basically just supporting Ukraine to being a combatant in the war, to being a participant in the war? Uh, and what would, if Russia f- decided that the United States had crossed that line, what would it do? Nobody really knows the answer to those questions. And um, as a result, there's this kind of uh, sense of risk constantly uh, that I think is, we don't, we've lost sight of in the past couple of months. This is a very, very risky situation for Washington. Nancy, I want to ask you something about something your paper quoted this week from U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who was in Kiev earlier this week. He said, quote, we know this is a pivotal moment, more than six months into Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine, as your counteroffensive is now underway and proving effective. Nancy, would you say that we are at a hinge moment or is it too soon to say? Well, I think there are a couple um, data points that we have to keep in mind. Remember that um, that this war has had a tremendous um, impact on Europe economically. Um, the rise in energy prices has led to um, inflation and fears of recession. On this this side of the ocean, I think um, there are concerns for some about how much um, the U.S. has given in terms of weapons, $15.2 billion uh, since January of this year. And on the ground, we've seen the Ukrainians start this counteroffensive campaign, and it is one that appears will take months to to execute, and if successful, um, would lead to a huge psychological win and, of course, a tactical win um, for the Ukrainians. It would stop Russian advances further west into Ukraine. And if it is unsuccessful in places like Kherson, for example, it sets the stage for Russia moving into Odessa and really locking um, Ukraine um, away from the Black Sea. And so you're having two pressure points, I think. One is the political pressure in the United States in Europe as this war appears to be entering a long-term um, um, effort. And I think on the ground, as the Ukrainians are launching um, uh, a counteroffensive that is going to be slow and deliberate and will have push and pulls um, uh, in, in a bid to stop further Russian advances. And so I think in that regard, yes, it is a pivotal moment. The only hesitation you're hearing from me is, as a war reporter, I often hear about pivotal moments in war, and war has a way of um, surprising um, those who, who try to predict the outcomes of it. And so I think every day in these wars are turning points. When they become pivotal or not, I don't know, but I do think we have two key um, factors we need to th- think about, the political and, the, and what's happening on the ground. Jessica, kind of the same question, really. Is there anything to suggest that we might move past a stalemate? I mean, I think that exactly what Nancy says, uh, having uh, myself covered the war in Afghanistan for for many years, back and forth for really 10 years, and every year a new commander would come in and say, this is a pivotal moment, things are going to change. And it seems to me that uh, the two sides, Ukraine and Russia, still very far away from uh, from talks or from any kind of agreement. And uh, the general view is that for the war to end, there does have to be some sort of settlement. And uh, that looks to be a long way away, despite what people hope is uh, a turning point now. 
Now, let's talk quickly about the U.S. and China. The Biden administration announced it's barring U.S. tech companies that receive federal funding from building advanced technology facilities in China. This comes as the U.S. tries to build up its own production, of course, of those microchips and reduce its reliance on China's semiconductor industry. The U.S. is already cracking down on the sale of these chips to China. What kind of impact could that have? Well, it could have a big impact um, because, uh, you know, a lot of the companies that uh, that, that, that do high-tech innovation, you know, for decades have relied on being able uh, to take advantage of lower costs uh, in China. Um, what's happening here, this is part of the U.S. Chips and Science Act, and it's part of a larger shift in, in U.S. policy towards something you, you'll hear people described as industrial policy, right? This is the idea that the federal government needs to become more involved in setting our tech strategy, the country's tech strategy, sort of in a way that, 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 that more akin to what was done in the early years of the Cold War, uh, and that we haven't done, right? Since the end of the Cold War, tech innovation and, 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 uh, and R&D has not been something that has been managed by Washington with a strategic considerations in mind. It's been more of a free market uh, you know, system, a more American capitalist-style system. This is a shift that's taking place that's really interesting, and it's leading to all kinds of debates about where to draw the line uh, between state support and state subsidies, to, which looks a little bit more like China's model, right, which is a command economy, yes. and how to continue to allow innovation to flourish uh, you know, in response to market forces. All this right. debate is, 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 is not over, and we're going to be hearing more and more about this in the years to come. That's Justin Vogt, Executive Editor of Foreign Affairs. We've also been talking with Nancy Youssef and Jessica Donati from The Wall Street Journal. Thanks to all of you. Aileen Humphreys is our editor and producer of 1A On Demand. Paige Osborne has been this week's other editor, and she's also our managing producer. Our senior producer is Maya Garg. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Matthew Simonson has been producing our on-demand shows. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. And I'm Sarah McCammon. This is 1A.